I assure you that the pause was all planned. You know, the dramatic effect, right, Vic? Thank you. <laughs> Happy New Year. It's the first time I get to say it to the congregation. I was uh, informed that there was a time for some people present here today where the first week of New Year's they would hitch up the horses and every week or every, every night of the week they would ride those horses in the carriage however many miles it was into town for a prayer meeting for every single night of the week. Now, we're not going to be asking you to hitch up your horses every single night this, this week, but what we want to do at the close of this sermon is to give an opportunity for us as a congregation to pray together. And we're going to spend a few moments doing that at the close of this sermon, where we can commit a new year to the Lord. And uh, I think it's very important that we pray together as a congregation. So we're going to have the opportunity to do that, and I just want to give you uh, the opportunity to think of that as we begin this sermon. So would you bow with me, and let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the hope that you have placed in our heart because of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, for this reminder in this video we just watched. Thank you, Lord, as we enter a new year, we are reminded again of hope in the future, that things uh, of the past, we can examine them, we can learn from them, but they stay in the past. But the future lies ahead of us, unknown, unseen, untouched, and yet you are already there. You are already ahead of us in time, preparing the way. What an awesome thing to consider as we enter a new year. And so I pray, Father, that you would tune our hearts to yours, our minds, our, heart, uh, our hearts, our souls. Um, give us ears to hear what you have for us today. I pray that you would speak through it. In Jesus' name, amen. A man by the name of Bill Vaughn was quoted as saying, Youth is when you're allowed to stay up late on New Year's Eve. Middle age is when you're forced to. <laughs> Did you feel forced to stay up to midnight? Who here went to bed before midnight? <laughs> oh, wow, okay, most of the congregation. Okay, you're not forced to anymore. He also is quoted as saying, an optimist stays up until midnight to see the new year in. A pessimist stays up to make sure the old year leaves. <laughs> so, depending on which end of the spectrum you are, whether we like it or not, a new year has begun. We are in the year A.D. 2014. 2013 is now in the history books. We can look back on it. We can pull out the photo albums and look at pictures of things that we did in this past year. But we can't alter them. We can't change anything that has happened in the past. It is already set. And now a new year lies ahead of us. It's natural at this time of year, the first Sunday in a new year to pause and reflect on the year that has just passed. How was your year? How was it? was it? Was it a good year? Was it a great year? Was it an okay year? Was it one of those years you're just glad it's done with? <laughs> How was your year? If you're like me, most of you can probably say there was good things that happened this last year, and there were some not-so-good things. Most years are like that. There's a little bit of both. But as we reflect on a year that was, one thing that we have to do, we're forced to do, is accept that it is over. The 2013th chapter since Christ walked on this earth has been closed, never to be reopened again. We can't change it, we can't add to it, nothing can be done or undone. The last line has been written. But now the opportunity is ours to once again look at a brand new, shiny year, right? 
You think of it like a new car on the lot, you know? There's not a scratch on it yet. It's still perfect. The years, nothing bad can happen ahead of us as of yet. We don't know what the future holds. But because of that, we have an opportunity to look at ourselves and say, who am I going to be in this new year? What am I going to do? And what does God want to do? Those are important questions for us to consider. So with the close of that chapter of 2013, I want us to consider this year ahead of us. What kind of things does God desire to bring about in your life this year? What do you think? What does God have in store for you? It's an interesting question, isn't it? Many of us are at a stage in life where we think, wow, what kind of things, what kind of good things could be in store? There are other people that I've talked to who have lived a long life who, this may sound morbid, but the best gift they could be given is to go home to be with Jesus. You know, there are many different stages of life and different ways of reflecting on it. But when we think of what God could have in store for us this year, no matter what age we are, we must realize that eternity could be what's in store for us this year. Are we living with that reality in our hearts? What will God do? You know, I believe that as individuals and as a church, God has much that he wants to do in us and through us this year. And that excites me. That fires me up. That gets me going. That's what brings me to the office to prepare a message and get up here on Sunday morning because I believe that God has greater things in store. The best is yet to come. He wants to do more in me. I'm so thankful for that. (laughs) He wants to do more in you. And I'm thankful for that too. (laughs) But more importantly, he wants to do more in us, his people, his children. He's not done with us. Isn't that great to know? He's not finished. The best is yet to come. And so this, I believe, is God's message for each of us as individuals, as a church, and as his body as we enter a new year. The Apostle Paul gives us the best New Year's instructions possible. Uh, You could turn there with me to Philippians chapter 3. I believe here Paul, he may as well have been writing this at the beginning of a new year, and yet he's writing it for all intents and purposes near the end of his life. And yet here, he is still reflecting on beginning a new chapter. Let's read it again to recap, beginning at verse 12 to 14. This is what Paul writes. Not that I have already obtained all of this, or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken a hold of it, but one thing I do. Forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. A packed passage. Let's try to unwrap it a little bit here this morning. There's five key lessons that we can learn from the Apostle Paul from this passage. The first is this. We all have an imperfect past. Every last one of us. We all have an imperfect past. None of us can look back at this past year that was, the year 2013, none of us can look back and say there's not one thing that I did wrong. None of us can look back and not pick out one thing that we're ashamed of, that I just wish I had done better, or if I hadn't messed up there. If every one of us was to take a microscope to examine this past year, we would all admit that there was at least one thing, if not many things, that we're ashamed of from this past year. 
We all have an imperfect past. And so, as we recognize this, we can take some comfort in knowing the Apostle Paul, of all people, was no different. He was just like us. He had a pretty ugly past, in fact. He had a past that included persecuting Christians, where he actually sought them out to do harm to them. And my guess is that over the course of his life, he had plenty of time to reflect on the shame of what he had done. But we also have to remember that Paul was a religious sort of person even before he encountered Christ. He was a Pharisee, which was one of the top elite religious people in that time within Jewish, Jewish circles. As a Pharisee, and as a young man, an up-and-coming religious leader, he had the ear and the trust of the religious establishment in place during the early days of the church. He was a person of importance, a person of power, someone to be feared. But all of his religion didn't keep him from having an ugly past. In spite of all of the, the trappings of following the, the strict teachings of the law, he still had all of this corruption and sin in his life. And we're not much different. Many of us have grown up in the church, and you may have as well. You may have grown up in the church, been more or less raised in a Christian environment. Maybe you've become involved in church. You might even have been a Sunday school teacher or a a church leader of some sort. But let me ask you, did those things keep you from having an imperfect past? Did those things keep you from sinning? Was your involvement with church or being raised in a Christian home enough to keep you from ever sinning? No. Why not? Well, it's because of the presence of sin in all of our lives. The imperfect past is there because we have chosen our way over God's way many different times. The Apostle Paul acknowledges his own imperfection, even as a Christian, when he says this, Not that I have already obtained all of this, or have already been made perfect, Paul's including himself on this list. Even as a Christian, someone who's following Christ, he says, not that I have yet obtained perfection. I've not yet reached that mark. I still struggle with sin, is what Paul is saying. And so we all, like Paul, have an imperfect past. There's no way we can escape from that fact. But the second lesson that we can learn from Paul is this. We don't have to remain slaves to our past. A lot of people remain in bondage to their past life. They look at a failure in the past or a group of failures and say, that's who I am. That's what defines me. I will never rise above what I have done. This is who I am. We become a slave to it. It's like chains may as well be wrapped around us from our past, holding us exactly where we are. There's no breaking free. We cannot move ahead because the chains from the past are clinging to us. We need to be broken free from those chains. But how can it be done? Have you ever tried to do it on your own? It's not as easy as we think. The only way that we can be removed from this bondage to the past, remaining slaves of our past sinfulness, is through Christ. He is the only one who can break the chains from the past. This is what happened in a radical way to the Apostle Paul. You know, the Apostle Paul could have looked at his past... And I guarantee you that if we compile all the bad things that are you know, represented from our collective pasts here, the Apostle Paul's by himself would stack up pretty good against the whole laundry list of ours. You know, he had a lot of things to chain him down. 
He could have said in light of that, look, I put people in prison. I voted for the death penalty for Christians, people like Stephen, other people that I arrested. There is no hope for me. There is no way I could ever be used by Christ. He could have stayed there in bondage. If you dwell only on the failures of yourself or of others from the past, from this past year, I guarantee you that it will paralyze you from moving into the future. It will paralyze you from going ahead with hope that things could ever change for the better. But here's the the little side note. The best is yet to come. Do you believe that? The best is yet to come. Paul had more reason to just quit and give up and remain in bondage to the past. He had more reason to do that than anyone else. But he insisted that he had something worth pressing on for. He believed that something was yet ahead of him that was worth pursuing. Listen to what he says. But I press on. But I press on. He uses that phrase twice in this passage. But I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. You know, if there's anyone that could say, Jesus got a hold of me, quite literally, it was the Apostle Paul, formerly known as Saul. You know, for all intents and purposes, the Lord Jesus basically reached out of heaven, grabbed Saul by the scruff of the neck on the road to Damascus, and threw him down in the dirt, blinded him, and said, now listen up, I'm going to set the record straight here, once and for all. You know, when Paul says, Christ laid a hold of me, (laughs) he meant it. This wasn't just some metaphorical illustration he was using. Jesus literally got a hold of the Apostle Paul. And listen, it was because Jesus got a hold of Paul, an unshakable grip. This wasn't just a passive little, little, you know, sissy grip. This is like an iron vice hold of Paul's life. And because of that grip of Jesus Christ on him, Paul was never the same. And he knew the grip Jesus had on him, and so he said, I am going to give everything I have to lay hold of that for which Jesus, in his mercy and in his strength, reached out of heaven and laid a hold of me when I was on the wrong track. I was headed the wrong way. I was persecuting Christ, and Jesus said, enough of that. I got a hold of your life now. And he was never the same. He pressed on. Let me ask you, has Jesus got that kind of a hold on you? Does Jesus have a grip on your life, or is it kind of a passive little, you know, yeah, it's nice when your hand's there, Jesus, but I like going this way. Or does he have a real firm grasp on your life? Does Jesus have a hold of you? Or are you haunted and paralyzed by the failures and sins of the past? Are you discouraged because you haven't yet perfected your walk with Christ? Well, let me tell you, if you haven't done that, you're in good company. Because the Apostle Paul says he hadn't perfected his walk with Christ yet either. And that's why he worked so hard at it. That was his goal. That was his aim. He would press on. Verse 13, he says, Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken a hold of it. Now listen, here's the key to this passage. Here's the key that unlocks the whole thing. The next line of verse 13. But one thing I do. If there's one thing I want you to get in your head and never forget, listen to this. One thing I do, forgetting what is behind, I strain towards what is ahead. Did you get that one thing? What is it? One thing. What does he do? 
Come on, people. Yeah, and what does he do before that? He's forgetting. The one thing he does is forgetting what is behind. Now, can you forget what's behind? Completely, literally, can you just hit the erase button? Delete the past? No, you can't. What's Paul getting at here? Forgetting what is behind. You know, he still remembered the past. He still had his memories. But he wasn't haunted by them. He wasn't a slave to them. He was forgetting them in the sense that he was putting them in their place. They are under Christ. They are finished. They are forgiven. They are done with. I am forgetting them. And I am looking ahead to Christ. I'm not going to keep looking in the rearview mirror at what I did wrong in the past. I'm going to forget all that stuff. And I am going to move ahead. Pressing on. That is the key. One thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on. You see, Paul recognized his past, but he refused to be a slave to it. And this leads us to our third lesson. No matter our current circumstances, we can move on to better and greater things. No matter where you are in life right now, no matter how good or bad it looks, things can change. We can move on to better things in Christ. Consider this. Paul was a few years away from his death when he wrote this letter to the church in Philippi. He was currently, the best we know from, from history and from the context of this scripture and others, the best we can, we can ascertain is that he was under house arrest. So that meant he had Roman soldiers guarding his house. He had some freedom to move within his house, but to leave was impossible. He was under house arrest this Roman guard hanging out all the time. And he lived and was writing all of these things in a place and time when being a Christian was a very risky health proposition. He was living in a place and time where being a Christian was a pretty good way of guaranteeing a shortened life. And in this circumstances, he could have said, well, I'm an old man now. I guess I'll just plod along here and live out the rest of my days in relative peace. You know, if anyone had earned the right to do that, it was Paul. And yet he still believed, even in this situation, after everything that he'd done, the years of traveling and planting churches and all of the hardship and all of the teaching and everything he'd endured, he had the right, if anyone had the right, to just sit down and say, I'm done. I'm just going to coast things out. And yet he doesn't do that. What does he say? He says, I press on. I still have something to shoot for. He still felt he had further to go in his relationship with Christ and in his service for him. He still wanted to learn more, grow more, serve more, love more. And I wonder how many people look at their circumstances and decide that it's just not worth trying anymore. I wonder how many people feel their past is just too bad or that the Christian life is just a little too hard or, or maybe that they've done enough and that they're just too old to be useful anymore. I wonder how many Christians think they've gone far enough in their relationship with Christ. And, you know, I don't need to work on strengthening my intimacy with him anymore. But if we look here at Paul as our example, we can see that it's never too late. And our past or circumstances or age don't need to stand in the way of knowing Christ in a more profound and deep way. And that leads us to our fourth lesson we can take from Paul, and that is, moving on only happens by intentional, determined effort. Okay? This doesn't just happen on its own. Moving on requires intentionality, and it requires effort. There's a word 
That doesn't fit very well with the Christian life. That word is convenience. Think of that word. We see it all around us, right? The convenience store. Having more convenience is usually labeled on any gadget that someone's trying to sell you. It makes your life more convenient. And we always strive to have things more convenient for us. And I have to confess, personal confession time, I love convenience. You know, I'm not going to lie. I like the fact that I can just go up the street and fill up my car. It's convenient. I like the fact that if I, you know, forgot to pick up some groceries that it's open, you know, most hours of the day and it's convenient. I can just pop in and grab something. You know, I love convenience. And I'll also confess that if I can do my Christmas shopping online, I will, I will prefer that option. For the main reason that, you know, I can sit in the convenience of my own home, on my own couch. I can have the hockey game on, a cup of coffee beside me. I can browse through the best prices, and then I can click buy. Ah, done. Christmas shopping over. You know, it's convenient. I don't have to go brave the icy streets and, and the big crowds and the shopping malls and, and, you know, wonder if you're getting the best price to try to find the, you know... Forget all that stuff. I just got to convince Leanne now. That's the only problem. And don't you just hate it when you go to the so-called convenience store at 10.05 and it's closed? I mean, how convenient is that, right? The bottom line is, we've all been conditioned to love convenience. Convenience is kind of put on a pedestal in our culture. As though something being convenient is its true value or not. The only problem with that thinking, and if we've bought into it because our culture says it's right and good, the only problem is that the Christian life is the most inconvenient thing that you can ever do. (laughs) Ever heard that one before? The Christian life is inconvenient, at least by the world's standards. You see, attending church, Sunday school, Bible study group, reading the Bible, praying, serving, giving of my own money... All of these things, helping others on my own time, this is inconvenient. But that's just our Canadian list of Christian inconveniences. Consider what Christians in other parts of the world actually consider inconveniences. You know, Paul's list of inconveniences included being mocked, slandered, hated, whipped, stoned, beat, shipwrecked, imprisoned, under house arrest... Those are the sorts of inconveniences that Paul had to deal with in his Christian life. And so you see, when Jesus made his call that if anyone would come after me, they must carry their cross daily and follow me. You know, lugging a big old cross around everywhere you go, not exactly convenient, is it? Because when you're carrying the cross, it sometimes gets in the way of what we want to do. And people say, what are you lugging that big old cross around for? You look out of place. You should fit in with the rest of us. Tuck that thing away. Maybe get one a little bit smaller. You can tuck it in your pocket. But Jesus says, no. If you want to follow me, you got to carry that big old inconvenient cross every single day if you want to come after me. It's not convenient to follow Christ by the world's standards. But I will tell you this. That if we do not allow Christ to inconvenience our lives, we are not following him. So let me ask you, is your faith convenient? 
Is it only there when it fits your way of life, the way you want to live? Or is it dictating to you the way you live and your way of life? Because if it's the other way around and we only use our faith when it fits what we want to do, that's not Christianity, my friends. That's something else altogether. And people are deceived all the time into believing that it's the real thing when it's not. You see, Paul says this, straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal. You see, Paul knew it takes hard work, determined, intentional effort. Like a weightlifter straining to lift the heavy bar above his head. Or the tractor straining to get through the mud. You can insert whatever tractor joke you want right there. (laughs) The John Deere had the oil on the ground. Okay, we got that out of the way. The case isn't straining. All right, all right, enough tractor jokes. Okay, but get this picture in your head of something straining. What have you ever strained to open the pickle jar, maybe, right? You're straining. Paul says, I am using incredible effort. I am exerting everything I have. I am straining to press on, to move ahead. Why is he straining? Is he straining because it's easy? No, he's straining because it's tough. It takes everything he's got. He's pushing hard. And we all like a version of Christianity that's convenient, which basically means one that's easy on my terms when I have time. But listen, if that's how we approach our relationship with Jesus, then that will affect how we approach everything in life. Our faith, how we serve the church, giving, helping, loving, bottom line is it will affect absolutely everything. Is your Christianity based on convenience or on Christ? Now, Let me just tell you, if it is based on Christ and you want to get to know him better and you say, here today, I'm going to change. I'm going to press on like Paul did. I'm going to persevere and say, you know what? 2014 is going to be different. I'm going to get to know Christ in a deeper way this year. If that is in your heart right now, let me tell you, it won't just happen on its own. Paul says, with determined effort, I press on. That means you need to have a plan. You see, I have a a personal goal, a fitness goal for this year. You know, that's what everyone does at New Year's, right? Either something to eat healthier, live healthier, get in better shape, lose weight, gain weight. My personal weight goal, now don't laugh. (laughs) Okay, you promise not to laugh. My goal for this year is to gain 10 pounds. Okay, no one laugh. Now, preferably of muscle, but 10 pounds. Now, I have the the P90X workout DVDs sitting on my shelf at home, okay? And I have this massive Costco-sized bottle of protein powder in my pantry, okay? So I've got got all the equipment. (laughs) Let me tell you that if those DVD workouts and that big bottle of protein powder just sits in my pantry and on my shelf, and I just look at them every day and think, yeah, I'm going to get in better shape. I'm going to gain 10 pounds of muscle this year. And I just keep looking at them, but don't actually do it. What's going to happen? Nothing. Nothing will change. Let me just ask you. Is your Bible sitting on the shelf? Your devotional and study books? They're all around you, readily available. You've got phone apps, web resources, DVDs, audio resources, everything around us to help build up our faith. They're all here at our disposal. If you don't have any of those things, talk to me. I can hook you up. Okay? They're all around us. They're not hard to find. 
But if all of those resources are just sitting there on our shelves, and we're just looking at them thinking, yeah, this year I'm going to serve God more. This year I'm going to get to know him in a deeper, more profound way. And we just keep looking at them, nothing's going to happen. Absolutely nothing. So if you desire to have a closer relationship with Jesus Christ, more consistency in your service to God, and greater purpose in building his church, get intentional. Put in that determined effort. Which leads us to our final goal. Pardon me, our final point. Number five, the goal is worth the effort. Verse 14, he concludes this passage by saying, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. You see, we all need a carrot dangled out in front of us once in a while. We need something to help motivate us. Paul here calls it a prize. Not just a wage or a paycheck. Not just a pat on the back and an attaboy. He's talking about a prize. Something so good that it's worth all the blood, sweat, and tears to achieve. You know, in a few weeks' time, the world is going to sit back and watch the Olympic Games. They're happening over in Sochi, Russia. And we're going to sit back and we're going to cheer on our Canadian athletes. And hopefully we're going to see some of those athletes standing on the top podium at the games in their respective sport. And they're going to get that gold medal hung around their necks. And we're going to see the, the Canadian flag raised up to the rafters. And oh, Canada's playing. And we're going to feel proud. Proud to be Canadian. Proud that that athlete is from our country. And we're going to say, yeah, this is good. They won first prize. And you know what? They should feel good about it. They put in all those years of hard work, all those years of dedication, and they won a little piece of metal on a strap. Great. Good. You did it. Now what? If we put that much emphasis and that much hoopla and that much national pride on a little piece of metal on a string around our necks, where does heaven fit into that equation? Where does Jesus Christ rank in comparison to a gold medal won at the Sochi Winter Games? You know, I think so many people end up having a lukewarm relationship with Christ because they see the work, they see the inconvenience side of things, but they don't see the prize. You know, make no mistake about it, the prize is Jesus. The prize is Jesus. You know, too many of us get confused into thinking that heaven is the prize. But you see, heaven wouldn't be heaven without Jesus. Jesus is the prize. He is who we are aiming for. Heaven is merely the setting where we will forever enjoy the prize of perfect intimacy, perfect relationship with God through Jesus. What is your goal for 2014? You know, people will take a picture of a boat or a tropical vacation, especially at this time of year, and pin it on their fridge and say, that's my goal. And they'll work hard and they'll save extra money to put in that vacation fund or that boat fund. And when they finally reach it and they buy it and they enjoy it and they say, yeah, I earned it. And they use that as a goal to aim for. But if we can use fitness goals or, or something like a boat or a tropical vacation to get us motivated to do something with our lives over and above what we're already doing, what does heaven do? What does relationship with Jesus do if we put that on our fridge and say this is going to change how I live this year and right now today you see I desire that you and I could see the value of Jesus Christ like Paul did because if we do and if we could it would change how we live and the bottom line of what I want to communicate to you through Paul's words here 
is that he decided to stop lingering on the chapters of the past that couldn't be changed, to not be discouraged by present circumstances, and instead follow Christ wholeheartedly. Focus on what he will yet do. Put the past behind. Press on. And this new year, we have the opportunity to do all of that. Jesus wants us completely committed to him, on fire. Where are we going to go? we got to go to him in prayer. And so we're going to use this next moment to bring our new year before him in prayer. And as I shared at the outset, this is just going to be a time of congregational prayer. You're used to hearing people pray from the front, but we need to spend time as his people praying in unison. And so I would invite you that as we just take a few minutes here to pray, to wherever you're sitting, feel free to pray out and dedicate this new year to the Lord and seek his guidance for us as a church and as individuals as we go into a new year. And so we'll just simply ask for you to feel free to pray out and we'll, we'll spend a few minutes in prayer. And so I'm going to um, just take a seat and I've, I've asked uh, Reuben if he would lead out in prayer for us and feel free to follow in after him. Thank you. Henry Friesen to come forward and lead us in a song at this time. And uh, we'll, we'll sing uh, the first verse, and uh, then I'll have the benediction.